This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy. It's good to have you join us for another action-packed episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Richard Prosh, and writing next to me is my gun-twirling co-host, Paul Bishop. Hello, Paul. Oops. Dang, this gun-twirling is harder than I thought. (laughs) Hey, dangerous, too, by the sounds of it. You still have all your fingers and toes? For now, but the bunkhouse icebox just took a hit. It may be fatal. (laughs) While I let Doc Adams and Marshall Dillon know, why don't you holster up and tell us about today's episode? Today we're cutting a trail through the barbed wire protected land of film noir to cut out a few unbranded strays from the herd claimed by the crime genre. Since the 1940s, film noir's fiery brand has been emblazoned across the dark soul of humanity. Its stylized angles, cinematography, and celluloid images are filled with desperate characters, everyman caught in a web of bad decisions infused with dark, often perverted desires, who are unable or unwilling to stop their spiral into the void. Moodiness, despair, guilt, and paranoia are all symptoms of the film noir virus. But if any genre would appear to be vaccinated against the gloom of film noir, it would be the wide-open landscapes and endless blue skies of the Western, the beating heart of American optimism infused with the lifeblood of moral clarity. But when the black hat virus of film noir catches the white-hatted Western with its mask down, to coin a current phrase, A bleak genre mashup is created that we're calling Noir on the Range, which is where we're headed today. Nothing like a little darkness and razored suspense to short-circuit the leftover holiday cheer. A little taste of noir now and then is guaranteed to wash away the flavor of stale candy canes. Dress it up with spurs, six guns, and a ten-gallon hat, stick it on a horse, and you can ride it straight to the gates of hell. (laughs) Dang, partner. Anyone would think that you like this stuff. I do. In fact, noir is what brought me back into westerns after many years of reading strictly crime fiction. The dark western novels of Arnold Hanno and H.A. DeRosso opened the doors to what now has become my obsession with westerns. Then let's get our western noir on and head down the dark trail to our feature. Purists may quibble with my following quick synopsis, but I feel the need to give a certain context to the Westerns we're going to be talking about today. Go for it. The dark and desperate crime stories of noir fiction ripped across American movie screens in the late 1940s. Our fighting forces, exposed to the horrors of World War II, returned home looking for entertainment traditional cinema stories with little depth and simple resolutions couldn't provide. But with its morally ambiguous and restless, untethered characters, The darkness of what was being referred to as film noir spoke to their souls. Influenced by the dark elements and stark minimalism of German expressionistic cinema from the 1920s, film noir was embraced by the war-hardened cynical segment of the public, who identified with the despair at the heart of the genre. The trappings of noir also crawled its way into the many crime novels of the day, bringing with it the same pervading darkness. My favorite description of noir comes from the late Ed Gorman, who stated revered noir novelist David Goodis didn't write novels, 
He wrote suicide notes. Wow. It doesn't get any more on target when it comes to noir. Gorman wrote his own share of Western noirs, including a series about a bounty hunter named Guild. The character is somewhat different from the traditional noir lead in that Guild is submerged in melancholy. His hopeless quest is to rescue those characters whose decisions have spiraled them into darkness. Guild is sort of like a guardian angel whose wings get clipped again and again, yet he keeps trying to save the unsavable. Guild is definitely a dark-edged series, but it is my favorite from Gorman's prolific output. Going back again to when film noirs were finding an audience among the many moviegoers who felt themselves alienated and dispossessed from the mainstream, the clear-cut morality of Western movies remained hugely popular. However, it wasn't long before the flickering images of the Wild West caught the noir virus and became moodier, darker, and more psychologically complex to also reflect the bleak restlessness of the post-war period. These new westerns took up the reins of noirish lighting, off-kilter shot angles, and storytelling techniques such as voiceovers and flashbacks. This shift, however, didn't mark an end to traditional westerns. Rather than overshadowing those films, the noir westerns coexisted with them in a sort of filmatic parallel universe, balancing and counterpointing each other throughout the golden age of westerns from the 40s through the 50s. This change was also reflected in western novels, and to some extent westerns on TV, many of which began to present scripts with moral dilemmas without simple resolutions. Both big screen and small screen directors, as well as the screenwriters and novelists, were themselves veterans of the war, and more than familiar with the tropes of film noir as used in the crime genre. The westerns offered them a place to let their own demons come out and play, through flawed characters haunted by past traumas. Now we've laid the groundwork, let's take a look at some of the westerns we're talking about. Why don't you kick us off with a review of a novel by one of the best and darkest western wordslingers to ride the noir trail? You bet. Clifton Adams unfortunately passed away at the age of 52. However, during his short lifespan, in which he became an accomplished jazz drummer, he also found time to write nearly 50 books and over 125 short stories. He won two consecutive Spur Awards for Best Western Novel from the Western Writers of America, first in 1969 for Trag's Choice, and then again in 1970 for The Last Days of Wolf Garnet. And in 1969, two years before his death, he was named Oklahoma Writer of the Year. He wrote his terrific Amos Flagg Westerns under the pseudonym Clay Randall, and he also wrote under the names Jonathan Gant and Matt Kincaid. However, while I really enjoy his Amos Flagg series, in his spur-winning westerns, Trag's choice is probably his magnum opus, Clifton Adams also had a dark side, a noir-infused sensibility that seemed to spring from the hidden depth of his soul where his jazz chops resided. When he let this darkness loose, it came out angry, ugly, and harsh in western tales of men whose circumstances or choices put them on the fast trail to oblivion, willing to take as many men with them as they had bullets in their guns. His noir westerns are steeped in grittiness, violence, and a sense of hopelessness, which strangely, his characters seem to both accept and revel in. Adams understood noir fans didn't want sermons. They wanted to read about nasty people doing nasty things. Desperado from 1950 is a prime example of Adams at his noirish best. Set in the early 1870s, 
when Texas was suffering under the Reconstructionist administration full of carpetbaggers and a sadistic police force of ex-Union bluebellies and freed slaves with a heavy-handed grudge against anyone perceived as part of or sympathetic to the Confederacy. Tal Cameron, known as Tall, is one of their targets and is forced to go on the run with Ray Novak, another young man who secretly despises Tall because of his jealousy over the lovely Laura Bannerman. Tall has a temper hotter than forked lightning with a cinch off, but once the action starts, he is cool and deadly. When he meets grizzled wanted outlaw Pappy Garrett, who can be only described as the Yoda of gunfighting, Tall finds a mentor, and once trained, his quick temper takes a second place only to the speed of his guns. Pappy's pearls of wisdom aren't as humorous as the gems spouted by Maverick's Pappy, but they are definitely to the point, such as one mistake is all a man is allowed when he's on the run, or you don't develop a fast draw all at once. You cut away a piece of a second here, a piece of a second there, until you've got rid of every bit of motion and friction that's not absolutely necessary. Or, knowing how to shoot and draw isn't enough. Boot hills are full of men who could outdraw and outshoot both of us. As he grows into a killer, Tall comes to some interesting conclusions of his own, such as, it's almost worth getting killed just to be part of the excitement of dying. Or, when he first sees Pappy's carbine and observes, it was a beautiful piece of killing equipment. You could almost imagine that a man would be glad to get shot with a gun like that, if he cared anything for firearms. When Novak tries to kill Pappy to collect the reward, he is thwarted by Tall and flees back to John City, where he is taken prisoner. To use our catchphrase, complications ensue when Novak kills two men, but is able to place the blame on Tall. All of this leads to the noir situation, where the outlaw Pappy is the only one who can alibi Tall and is forced to decide whether to stick his neck out for an innocent man. Wow, that's quite the setup. And if I remember right, Donald Westlake cited The Desperado as one of the influences on his iconic Parker heist novels, which he wrote as Richard Stark. That's right. Westlake maintained Adams the Desperado introduced him to the notion of a character adapting to his forced separation from normal society, and I can see that in this book. In many ways, the book comes off as tall, becoming a Parker in the Wild West. Adams provides a framework of wrong timing and bad choices that turn the inherently good young man into a hardened outlaw. The violence is swift, but it always carries consequences, with little romance to life on the trail. And Adams wrote a sequel. Yes, Noose for the Desperado. It's pretty much a heist novel dressed up to play cowboy, with Tall riding into an outlaw town where he gets involved with a heist, while also spotting his one chance of redemption. It's a good book, but The Desperado is a noir masterpiece about a good man forced to turn bad, who does bad things in the name of correcting the wrong things done to him. When you told me you were reviewing The Desperado, I looked it up and found there are two movies based on it, The Desperado in 1954, which features Lee Van Cleef in a bit part, and the better of the two films, Cole Younger, Gunfighter, which places the notorious real-life outlaw in the role of Pappy Garrett. Both screenplays were written by film noir legend Daniel Mainwaring. Those are now on my watch list, but first I want to hear your review of what I consider to be the quintessential Western noir novel. H.A. DeRoso's 1953 Lion paperback, 44, is a tough-as-boot-leather novel that set the standard for Western noir. 
Pete Branvold says it's the kind of Western Mickey Spillane might have written when he was knocking out his dark and violent Mike Hammer books. And Pete's not wrong. Fast on the draw, Dan Harlan finds his reputation has him cast in the role of victim or killer wherever he goes. Reluctant and out of options, he assumes the mantle of hired killer and takes a job trailing Jim Lancaster. Lancaster's fast on the draw, too, even quicker than Dan. When the two face off and Jim raises his gun faster than Dan, he doesn't fire. Dan plugs Jim, but in a fit of sympathy, comforts the dying man overnight. A bond between the two is formed, and, in the novel's weakest plot point for me, Dan decides to learn exactly why Jim was marked for death. Dan feels like he owes Jim a certain measure of vengeance since he let him live. With that, Dan is off to the stalwart mountains and eventually a cramped little burg called Edenville, where he encounters a passel of lost souls, scheming killers, a wealthy rancher, not one, but at least three femme fatales, and maybe, just maybe, the answer he's looking for. If you can accept the dubious premise that hired killer Dan cares enough about Lancaster's killing to put his own life on the line, 44 is a rollicking doomfest of downhill action leading to the inevitably bleak conclusion. But did you like it? It's a mixed bag. DeRosso has a quirky writing style, again, much like Spillane, though maybe not as heavy-handed, and he tends to use words like phantasmal, so that's a bit distracting. He does write suspense incredibly well, and just to confirm, this one's as much mystery as Western, so there's an appropriately satisfying and violent denouement. That said, I never could get past Dan Harlan's contrived motivation. So, decent story, set up, for me, on a contrived premise. That's fair enough. And then there's Arnold Hanno, who is another top-notch writer of Western noirs who I want to bring to the attention of our listeners. Hanno was well-known as a sports writer, but is probably best remembered as the Lion Books editor who guided the early careers of not only Jim Thompson and Richard Matheson, but also H.A. DeRosso, who you just talked about. Aside from his editing duties, Hanno also wrote a few westerns of his own, including The Last Notch, which is about as noir a tale as it gets. Originally written under Hanno's Matthew Grant pseudonym, The Last Notch was recently reprinted by Starkhouse Press as part of their Black Gap books line. The background of the tale is historically based in the 1870s New Mexico Territory when Governor Lew Wallace was attempting to prevent another bloody Lincoln County war situation by offering amnesty to Billy the Kid along with other deadly owl hoots. Hanno fills his tale with fictionalized characters but stays true to the personalities of those involved and the actual events of the day. Into this simmering cauldron, Hanno shoves fast gun and killer-for-hire Ben Slattery who would normally thrive in the situation. But Slattery is burned out, tired of killing, and moving on to the next range war. He wants the amnesty being offered by the governor, but inevitably, no matter how he tries to avoid it, he is drawn into a confrontation with the kid, a thinly-veiled William Bonney, who's itching for a showdown. Slattery wants to be able to quit worrying about the kid, who's eager to have a showdown and prove his the faster draw. Desperate to escape his pursuing past, Slattery agrees to take one last job, one last kill, for a payoff big enough to fund his escape from the life. As our buddy James Reasoner puts it, all you have to hear is one last job, and things aren't going to go well for Slattery. Sure enough, they don't, in as neat a twist as you'll find in any Western novel. 
how bad things can get, and whether or not Slattery survives, you'll have to read the book to find out. The last notch is top-notch, striking in its setting and the intensity of its characters. While it's certainly suspenseful and fast-paced, the last notch is more slow burn than pulp action, but all the better for it. I highly recommend it. As we began research for this episode, I think we both agreed that while there are a number of noir-tinged Western novels and a fistful of noirish Western TV show episodes, the whole subgenre of Western noir is best illustrated in a pole posse of Western movies from the 40s and 50s. Without a doubt. And beginning with Pursued from 1947, which is considered by many to be the first of the true Western noirs. The film is set in the 1880s with Raoul Walsh directing an always electric Robert Mitchum in a range melodrama with overtones of gothics such as Wuthering Heights and Rebecca. Interestingly, Mitchum shot this film the same year as he made one of my favorite traditional noirs out of the past. Here, as in that film, the underlying suspense is the noir trope of past actions threatening to violently and tragically destroy the present. The film opens in a charred, decaying ruin where Jeb Rand, Robert Mitchum, takes refuge from a lynch mob. In this barren landscape where bones sprout from the earth and nooses dangle from dead trees, Rand retraces his past, going back to a primal childhood memory of flashing spurs and being confined behind a trap door while his family is slaughtered. The screenplay was written by Niven Bush, whose wife Teresa Wright is the film's female lead. Bush was a master at the noir western, both in novels and on the screen. His best-selling books, Duel in the Sun and The Furies, are both western noirs and were made into successful films. Bush also wrote the screenplay for the granddaddy of all noirs, The Postman Always Rings Twice. With Pursuit's crushing angles, stark black-and-white contrasts, night scenes and looming close-ups, Walsh is clearly getting his noir on but he plays all of this out across the expansive skies and big rock formations of a John Ford Western. This is not the best of the Western noirs, as motives are more obscure than simply hidden or murky, and it plays out like an angst-filled paranoid stream. But it's worth watching as it provides the foundation for the Western noirs that followed. And for the truly trivia-minded, Sheriff Minushai has you covered with the odd fact that the dark poet himself, Jim Morrison of The Doors, had watched Pursued on the night he died, July 3, 1971. Ramrod is a 1947 movie directed by a Hungarian, Andrei de Toth, and was the first of several films based on the stories of Luke Short, starring Joel McRae and Veronica Lake, who was then married to de Toth. It's thoroughly noir from the cinematography, to the devil woman who leads more than one poor doomed bastard to his grave. And I think Veronica Lake did that in real life, if you, <laughs> if you know anything about her. Indeed. Lake plays Connie Dickinson, a ruthless daughter of a local rancher who goes against her father's wishes to marry a powerful cattleman named Frank Ivy. Instead, she takes up with a sheep rancher and inherits the man's ranch. Connie is conniving and manipulative, and persuades ranch hand Dave Nash, McCray, to be her ramrod. Nash hires his old pal, Bill Shell, to help him run the place. Connie isn't capable of running the ranch and competing with Ivy fair and square. 
Instead, she uses her dark feminine wiles to seduce Dave and Bill both. When she manages to convince Bill to stampede her own cattle in an attempt to frame Ivy, it's an incident that sets the rest of the movie in motion. Good-natured Sheriff Jim Crew is shot down in cold blood. Dave is ambushed. Bill is hunted in the mountains by Ivy. It's all-out mayhem. The ending is satisfying enough, but I've got to be honest, by this time I was more than ready for Ramrod to be over, even with its relatively short 95-minute runtime. The movie was a critical success, if not a box office smash, and it does have two things going for it in its two stars, Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. Otherwise, a fairly good representation of both the Western and crime noir genre, it also falls victim to my chief criticism of much of what passes for noir. You ready, Paul? I am. The idiot plot. Okay, then. (laughs) Let me explain. Earlier, Paul described noir as populated by desperate characters, every man caught in a web of bad decisions infused with dark, often perverted desires. In the hands of a good writer, such characters can be compelling. More, a solid plot will reveal the direct, undeniable results of the characters' foibles. Arguably, noir is one of the most conservative genres of storytelling in that justice for these characters is immutable. Reality has a stark right and wrong, and bad decisions lead to bad consequences, no matter the intention. It's the scripting of the character and the seeming inevitable nature of their choices that make for great noir. But too often in the hands of lesser writers, the character is just an idiot, or worse, the cast is populated by multiple idiots. Where if one or more of the characters simply stopped being an idiot and thought about what was happening, there wouldn't be a movie. For me, Ramrod is that movie. Connie and everybody else involved acts like they can't see that Frank Ivey's a bad guy, even though they run around telling each other that he's a bad guy. Unwilling to stand up to him or simply shoot him down, they instead contort themselves throughout a series of unbelievable machinations for reasons that often seem murky at best. Dave Nash is the biggest idiot of all because not only does he moon over Connie, even though he's in love with another woman named Rose, He takes little or no real action on his own to effect much change. As a hero, he's worthless, and as a villain, Connie's kind of a weak sister. There's absolutely no reason that the last five minutes of the film couldn't have played out in the first five minutes. But then, of course, you wouldn't have had a film. Luke Short was a solid writer, so I'm going to blame the screenplay, which, not surprising, is credited to three additional names, Jack Moffat, C. Graham Baker, and Cecile Kramer. That's the thing about noir, either in books or movies. There are a lot of writers who don't really understand what it is. They think they want to sit down and write this dark masterpiece. But as you say, they don't just have the characters making desperate choices or inevitable choices or choices that they don't really have. They make idiot choices. And I think that's the key to whether a noir is worth really watching or not. I agree, exactly. Not quite idiotic, but the 1954 Western noir Johnny Guitar, and I just love the name, certainly has an over-the-top performance by legendary scenery chewer Joan Crawford in a rare screen appearance wearing cowboy attire. Helped by noir regular Sterling Hayden, she definitely made the most of the opportunity to show whatever her hated rival Betty Davis could do, she could do better, louder, and meaner. 
The screenplay was adapted from the 1952 novel of the same name by Roy Chancellor. Chancellor also wrote another well-known feminist sagebrush novel, Cap Baloo, which was filmed in 1965 with Jane Fonda in the lead. Here, Crawford plays a tough saloonkeeper named Vienna, who is viewed with hostility and suspicion by the neighboring townspeople. In addition to having a mysterious past, Vienna also supports a railroad being built near the town. When four men hold up a stagecoach and kill a man, a mob of townspeople set out for Vienna's saloon, willing to lynch anybody for the crime. But when Vienna takes a stand against them, it's enough to incite the townspeople to drive her away by any means necessary. But Vienna won't give up that easily, and with the help from the slyly formidable Johnny Guitar, who is anything but what he seems, she makes a determined final stand. Possibly the most deviant of Westerns to ever make it past the Hayes Committee of Censors, Johnny Guitar is filled with obsessive personalities flirting with bizarre sexually linked psychological fixations, all of which makes this film unmistakably noir. The main villain of the piece, the demonic, sexually repressed Emma Stone, is played by Mercedes McCambridge. But Joan Crawford's character, reveling as she does in domination and humiliation, is not much better. Between the two of them, they forcibly bend the men to defer to their powerful determination and identities. While Johnny Guitar cracks up the melodrama to epic proportions, there is something so gritty and nasty about the entire conflagration, you can't look away. And that's what in the end makes the film essential watching for any fan of Western noirs. If you think Joan Crawford's performance is as crazy as it gets, you haven't watched Barbara Stanwyck in The Furies, a movie that defies genre by playing against the tropes of both Western and crime noir. Ultimately, however, for this viewer, it comes up short on the draw against both. What works in this 1950 black and white based on a 1948 novel, again by Niven Bush, works really well. What doesn't work is tough to sit through. This isn't the apple dumpling game. Director Anthony Mann tells the story of the Furies, an 1870s New Mexico ranch and its loud-as-hell tyrannical owner, T.C. Jeffords. Since the death of his wife, Jeffords, expertly portrayed here by Walter Houston in his final role, has let the business go to hell and engages in a stormy, almost incestuous relationship with his headstrong, ruthless daughter, Vance, played by Barbara Stanwyck, no stranger to noir, having starred in the genre-defining classic Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray. Though as an aside, my favorite of her dark films is her 1940 Christmas noir with McMurray called Remember the Night. Back at the Furies, Jeffords' rough treatment of the Herreras, a family of Mexicans squatting on his property, is a sore spot between dad and daughter, because Vance has a secret bond with Juan Herrera. It's not exactly a love affair, but it's more than a friendship, and of course, that's not the only thing coming between them. Looking for a suitor who can run the ranch once Jeffords dies, Vance pursues the gambler Rip Darrow, played by Wendell Corey, whose family once owned a portion of the ranch. Rip is as big a jerk as Jeffords and Vance, and he holds a grudge against them. Rip owns a saloon and soon opens a bank next door. He's no financial slouch, and his morality is demonstrably bankrupt when he accepts a $50,000 bribe from Jeffords to desert his affair with Vance. He's so rotten, he'll be back to play an integral role in the plot. That's almost too clever for its own good. Like an early robber baron, Jeffords pays his bills with his own personal notes rather than dollars. 
As the fortunes of the ranch dwindle, the value of these TCs, for TC Jeffords, is on the decline and Vance knows it. So does Rip Darrow. Meanwhile, Jeffords finds comfort in the arms of a gold digger named Flo Burnett, who admits she's just looking for the financial security that the Furies might offer. In a fit of jealous anger, Vance throws a scissors at Flo, disfiguring her face. Fleeing on horseback to the Herrera compound, Vance hides from her dad. But the incident provokes a martial confrontation. In a fit of vengeance, Jeffords hangs Juan Herrera as Vance watches. Naturally, she swears to ruin his life. The idiot plot that I mentioned above has not yet reared its ugly head. Up until this point, the movie plays fairly well as a heavy-handed Western Gothic with elements of noir in the filming and presentation. Where things go bad is when Vance teams up with Darrow to rip off the old man. The love-hate-hit-me-kiss-me noir shtick is overplayed by Stanwyck and Corey, and the ending goes way wrong. Because after having successfully ripped off TC, Vance, in perfectly idiotic fashion, laughs it off and forgives the old buzzard which is, for me, an oddly artificial climax before the inevitable noir-style ending. I like Stanwyck as a rule, but she never seems to click with the role of Vance Jefford as it's written here. She's maniacally evil in one scene, tender and loving in the next, kind of symbolic of a film that's never quite sure what direction it should take. Now, to be sure, the black-and-white photography is amazing, and Walter Houston does his usual genius-level work bringing T.C. Jeffords to Shakespearean-level heights of character. It works as noir in that Jeffords is doomed from the beginning, though Vance and Darrow both get off a little too easy. And, again, it looks like noir, so that's something. The Furies didn't do as well at the box office as hoped, but Mann followed it with the hugely successful Winchester 73 with James Stewart, and a subsequently acclaimed career. Since 1950, The Furies has been hailed as a Freudian Western, and for all its foibles is counted as a solid contribution to the genre. Even with its dark heart and at times hysterical performances, I still love this stuff. And for those of you who are also hooked on noir, here are a few other titles to check out, starting with Winchester 73 and Man of the West. As you mentioned, Rich, Anthony Mann helmed Winchester 73 after he finished The Furies. Here, he's matched with a revitalized Jimmy Stewart in the lead role as a man on an unstoppable quest not only to recover the stolen rifle of the title, but also to kill the man who murdered his father. This dark epic of revenge and obsession is the best of the Mann-Stewart herrings. Man of the West is the last Western noir Anthony Mann directed, but this time with Gary Cooper as an ex-gunslinger on a collision course with the leader of his old gang, played by Lee J. Cobb. I love Winchester 73, Paul. It's one of my favorite Western films, period, and it's probably the best representation of Western noir for me. I'll also add Rawhide from 1951, with Tyrone Power as an assistant station master matching wits against a gang looking to rob the next stagecoach. Directed by Henry Hathaway, this bleak gem features a tough-as-nails performance by Susan Hayward, who gets to go toe-to-toe with a whack job played by Jack Elam at his ghoulish best. I haven't seen this movie for several years, but I love it. Anything that has Jack Elam in it at his ghoulish best has got to be worth watching. Absolutely. And Susan Hayward is right up there with Joan Crawford and Veronica Lake and the others that we talk about as being queens of noir. She is. Based on the novel Gunman's Chance by Luke Short, 
Robert Mitchum is back in director Robert Wise's 1948 effort, Blood on the Moon. Mitchum is a drifter who finds himself in the middle of a war between homesteaders and cattlemen. Making matters worse is his old pal-turned-nemesis, Robert Preston, who's determined to get between Mitchum and the spunky, gum-wielding Barbara Bell Geddes. There's a deadly knockdown, drag-out fistfight between Mitchum and Preston, a suspenseful, well-filmed chase across snow-covered mountains, and the climactic gunfight between Preston's henchmen, Mitchum, and Bell Geddes is everything it should be. Robert Mitchum made a whole fistful of Western noirs, carrying most of them along on the strength of his roughened good looks and acting chops. 1954's Track of the Cat is based on the novel of the same name by Walter Van Tilsburg Clark, who is also the author of the better-known noirish western The Oxbow Incident. Here Mitchum plays his patented moody loner, but in this role as Kurt, the middle brother of the Bridges clan, he adds physical abuse and mental cruelty to his repertoire as his mega-dysfunctional family tries to survive the harsh winter conditions that have isolated their northern California ranch. When a panther kills Kurt's younger brother, he becomes obsessed with tracking and killing the preternaturally aware predator. However, the noirish underpinnings here have more to do with the deadly dynamics of Kurt's maladjusted clan and his own self-hatred. Track of the Cat has an eerie touch of Edgar Allan Poe woven into the primitive savagery of Indian folklore. It makes for riveting viewing. You talked about Barbara Stanwyck and the Furies. Personally, I've never bought her as a romantic lead. There's nothing soft about her. She's a badass to the core. She exudes this simmering, hell-on-wheels, barely-controlled, hair-trigger instability. Frankly, when she lets out her inner dominatrix, she scares the hell out of me. In 40 Guns, Stanwyck is perfectly cast as Arizona cattle queen Jessica Drummond. The 40 Guns of the title refer to the regiment of cowboys ready and willing to do her bidding functioning more as a private army than ranch hands. Maverick director Sam Fuller's trademark moody, sullen style permeates the film with a dark dread, which deepens when Stanwyck's vicious brother kills the elderly near-blind town lawman. When U.S. Marshal Griff Bunnell, played by Barry Sullivan, turns up with two of his brothers with a warrant to arrest the killer, the entire town erupts in chaos and violence. Melodrama and Flying Lib provide the background for another towering performance by Barbara Stanwyck, for whom the film's title song, High Riding Woman with a Whip, is perfectly suited. Another film haunted by dread is 1948's Terror in a Texas Town. Soaked in fear, it provides the perfect noir vehicle for Sterling Hayden, playing the nonviolent son of a murdered father, whose mission for justice becomes a mandate for vengeance. The coolest thing about this movie, however, is captured in the image on its movie posters, which show a man standing in a dusty western street holding a harpoon instead of a pistol. The question of if a harpoon can be deadlier than a passel of six-shooters makes this a noir worth watching. Any movie poster that's got a guy standing in there with a harpoon, I'm going to go see it. Me too. In Devil's Doorway from 1950, Anthony Mann again directs what amounts to a socially conscious Western noir, with a nice twist on the usual tropes of white settlers versus Indians. 
The movie, however, wasn't socially conscious enough to see the irony of casting blue-eyed Robert Taylor as civilized Shoshone Indian Lance Poole, a.k.a. Broken Lance, even if they do cover him with dark makeup and hair that changes length with every scene. Despite this misstep, I enjoyed this tale of an Indian who fought at Antium in the Civil War, then won the Medal of Honor at Gettysburg, before returning home to Medicine Bow, Wyoming, to find his people in desperate need and trouble. Broken Lance's family have long ranched at Sweet Meadows in the mountains, the area known today as the Wind River Reservation. The gap leading to their mountain valley is known as the Devil's Doorway, and much of the action takes place around it. When sheep ranchers, lured by a venal and greedy lawyer who has promised them free grazing land, turn up, the scene is set for a deadly and duplicitous confrontation. The film is not based on any historical incident involving the Shoshones, but it's not wrong about the implacability of racial attitudes which drive the dark heart of the film. Dick Powell is a government agent in 1948's Station West, investigating the death of two soldiers connected to a sexy saloon singer played by noir goddess Jane Greer, who also starred in the brilliant crime noir Out of the Past. This is a classic film noir setup placed directly into a western setting. And for further noir viewing, check out The Walking Hills with Randolph Scott, John Ireland, and Ella Raines from 1949, The Violet Men from 1965 with Glenn Ford and Barbara Stanwyck again, Lust for Gold with Glenn Ford and Ida Lupino, who's one of my favorites, from 1949, and Lonely Are the Brave from 1962 with Kirk Douglas. I also think we can add the Oxbow Incident from 1943 with Henry Fonda, which is very much a noir western at its heart. Good point. Now, turning to westerns on television, it's not surprising that Rod Serling is the most common source of western noir on the small screen. The elements of noir are perfectly aligned for the inherent darkness of episodes from the Twilight Zone or Night Gallery. An excellent example is The Grave, from Season 3 with Lee Marvin at his unstable best as bounty hunter Connie Miller. He's hired to track and kill the murderous Pinto Sykes, who is delighted in spreading the word that Connie is a coward who is scared to face him. When Sykes doubles back to the town, he figures he's got Connie fooled, but ends up being taken out by the townsfolk in a hail of bullets. On his deathbed, Sykes offers up a dare, relayed by the townsfolks, challenging Connie to prove he isn't scared of Sykes by going alone to Sykes' grave at midnight to stick a dagger in the earth above Sykes' body. This tale starts with a frenzy of gunfire, but then settles into a moody, slow build before the impact of its ambiguous noir finale. The second season of The Twilight Zone offered up dust for your consideration, giving us a sympathetic sheriff, distraught father, and a callous con man among the many gathered in a desert town on a hot day to see a man hanged for accidentally killing a little girl while drunk. The shady con man sells the desperate father of the condemned man a bag of magic dust, claiming it will turn people's hearts to love and empathy rather than hate. Containing a definite punch, dust builds to a darker and more profound ending, which is very different from the standard ironic twist endings of most Twilight Zone episodes. Then in the waiting room episode from Night Gallery's second season, gunslinger Sam Dieter played by Steve Forrest, is seeking shelter from the cold and a glass of whiskey and finds himself in a saloon with a gang of strange outlaws known for their mastery with a six-gun who just seem to be awaiting their fate. Bill Bixby plays a tormented attorney, and Donna Douglas adds some sinful heat. 
when the antagonistic, bad-tempered Dieter engages the other killers in a conversation, he gets a hell of a lot more than he bargained for. Another Season 2 Night Gallery episode with elements of Western noir is Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, in which Forrest Tucker gets the lead as a charlatan selling cure-all elixirs from his traveling wagon. When he promises one of his potions will either cure or resurrect a poor farmer's dying daughter, bad things are going to happen. Rod Serling's patented dialogue does a marvelous job of almost, but not quite, justifying Dr. Stringfellow's actions. The problem, of course, arises when Dr. Stringfellow can't bring himself to believe his own hogwash. Even better than the Twilight Zone and Night Gallery episodes, in 1965, Rod Serling created the Western series The Loner, starring Lloyd Bridges as disillusioned ex-Union soldier William Colton, who wanders the West in search of purpose and redemption. Under anyone else's guidance, this cliched premise would have been totally unremarkable. But with Serling either writing or co-writing all 26 half-hour episodes, The Loner has retrospectively become absolutely memorable television. At the time it aired, however, the show was decades ahead of its time. Dark and brooding and dealing with uncomfortable subjects that left network executives and censors wetting themselves, it was canceled after one season. But it deserved a far longer run. The debut episode in Echo of Bugles. Bridges gives a powerfully poignant performance as he tries to help a shattered former Confederate POW pick up the pieces of his life as he deals with the lingering schizophrenia of divided loyalties long before the term post-traumatic stress entered the public lexicon. Compared to the action-oriented traditional Western series, the loner's meditations on the darkness of the human soul were gems of noir sensibility. Even though it was unrecognized at the time, the show clearly addressed the widening social division of 1960s America and is just as clearly applicable today when those divisions have not only reappeared, but widened out of proportion. Essentially, the loner is solid noir, unnerving the status quo while engaging the intellect with questions of how an individual who has participated in the horrors of war or live through turmoil, hatred, and death through other experiences, can begin to find peace, understanding, and a place in the world. This is top-notch stuff. There's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle Partner telling us to wrap up this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to our other sponsors, author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to Roundup Magazine for their support in promoting our podcast. Thanks to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sixgunjustice and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along. Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to have you sharing the trail ride with us. Next Monday, Rich will be hosting a Six Gun Justice Speed Listen. And in two weeks, we'll be back with episode 25 of the Six Gun Justice podcast, celebrating our first anniversary. And don't forget our Six Gun Justice conversation segments every Wednesday, when either Paul or I will get to hang around the corral talking with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other. Be kind to yourselves and stick to the cowboy code. Adios for now.
We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing, publishers of such best-selling Western series as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho.